0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's July 4th, 2020, probably the oddest Independence Day in American history. We're all locked at home. Uh, And it may be odd in another way, too. It's dawning on more and more people that maybe uh, America is independent from the British and they fought off the colonial oppressor. But there are new forms of oppression in America in 2020. If anything, America is less independent, or at least Americans are less independent today in 2020 than they were 50 years ago. Uh, Mercer Baradaran is a professor of law at UC Irvine. She's the author of The Color of Money, Black Banks, Uh, and the racial wealth gap. And she's also the author of a a really compelling and disturbing op-ed in last week's New York Times, The Neoliberal Looting of America. Mercer, happy Independence Day, but the subtext of your piece is that we're not really very independent, are we, in America in 2020? Um,
1: Yes, well, it depends on who... uh who can buy i guess their own independence and their freedom and uh those who cannot are uh, i think have less to celebrate
0: who who in your and and i i know the response but i i want to put it in your words without me saying it who, who is the new oppressor in the america of 2020 who you you talk about um and i'm quoting from the piece an ideological coup uh, that has quietly transformed our society over the last fifty years. Who are the perpetrators of this ideological coup?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I guess um, it is the, the 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 very wealthy, and through the mechanism of you know both private equity, through you know opportunity hoarding that happens, um, just the radical divergent. Fates of the very top, you know, it's called the one percent versus um, the rest of people. And I don't, you know, the villain, the the oppressors aren't like the oppressors of old, where you know you have you know, kings or or lords, and, and it's very clear. Um, the thing that America has is this sort of myth of meritocracy and earned uh, status, and um, you know that anyone can can be a billionaire. And so a lot of Americans who are suffering and are Quite poor and can't afford just basic services. Some some think them of themselves as future billionaires, right? They're just like one great idea away from you know the next being the next Mark Zuckerberg, and and that that just the data is is overwhelmingly um, has debunked that that idea. But that is an idea that was sold by a certain ideology, Uh, call it neoliberalism, you know, free market fundamentalism. It's the Reagan, Thatcher, but before that, you know, uh, Greenspan, Milton Friedman, Hayek, uh, this idea that the market knows best and it rewards those who bring their goods to market and that the the, the best, you know, wins. And, And that is not true because the you know uh, the wealthy end up creating monopolies and shutting down competition and buying out you know all the other firms and making it really difficult to actually even pass legislation because of the the money spent on on lobbying and and on just you know it, all of the uh, political um, obstacles that that wealthy uh, the wealthy put in, you know in in terms of uh, democracy right
0: so the destruction of the meritocracy that you talk about seems to be um, being triggered, in symbolic terms at least, more than anything else, by what you call private equity firms. What is a private equity firm? Mercer, um, so our audience is, is more bookish than than economic. So perhaps you might explain what these things are in, in everyday language rather than in the language of, uh, of business.
1: Sure. Um, you know, I use private equity as a... An example of, of what's gone awry. Um, I think there are other problems beyond private equity, but what private equity shows is, you know, private equity is basically, you know, you can go to the capital market and buy a share in a company. So stocks and things like that, those are public markets. And those of us who, you know, engage in, you know, a 401k or have a pension or something, you're kind of broadly invested in uh Companies and with those companies, uh, it's, it's, it basically, you know what you're getting. You're getting a share, you know, and you have some shareholder representative that buys up a share of that company, and that, that's basically how it used to be that you would, you know, invest uh, if you had money. Even if you had a little bit of money, you would have, you know, some access to that. Um, private equity uh, over the last. 10, 20 years um, is the new uh, investor sort of class for, for the very, very wealthy. So to invest in private equity, you have to be a very high net worth individual. The rest, the average people can't invest because uh, private equity firms don't have to disclose anything in the way that normal companies that are publicly traded have to do, right? There's a whole, you know, the SEC has to make sure that you're disclosing the right things and not, not the wrong things. And private equity basically said, look, we're just going to take High net worth individuals who don't need that those protections by law, and we're gonna, you know, put their money and 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 give you bigger returns than what you would get on the stock market or any other investment, and, and that has turned out to be true. And so what private equity does is it takes all this money, and then adds debt and does this thing called a leverage buyout um, of, of companies. So uh, Toys R Us, for example, or you know J Crew are uh, two brands that have succumbed to private equity. Um, and, and the private equity firm comes in with a ton of money, and then they they buy up that company in, a, in sort of a hostile, it's not a friendly uh, buyout. And they squeeze that company for as much profits as they can. So they cut jobs, they, you know, close stores, um, and then they add leverage. So they add debt, they, they create a situation where that company has to... Um, uh, sort of, they 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 sort of move uh, up the market pressure on that company so that they'll be forced to reduce all inefficiencies, right? Which is basically labor and pension holders get cut out and any sort of benefits for employees. Um, you know, you had maybe permanent employees and now you have temporary, and so. And, and increasingly, private equity has just become this massive market. So in 2019, they had their biggest year to date with you know, 900 billion new investors. Something that I didn't put in the op-ed, but that just passed is uh, the Trump uh, administration allowed, you know, uh, all mutual funds. So another 400 to 500 billion dollars in people's investments into private equity. So that's a huge windfall for them. And, and they take this money and then they kind of, you know, uh, uh, squeeze out profits from companies, which means uh, reducing jobs. And so, you know, I use this as an example of how the wealthy, you know, and uh, uh, and, and their investments and in, in, through private equity managers themselves have really reshaped markets in a way that benefits them and harms everyone else. You know, and, and also the tax structure for private equity is just insane. I mean, the managers don't pay regular taxes. There's a two and twenty structure, which is that they take, you know, two two uh, percent uh, fees and then twenty percent of the uh, returns um, from all their investments. So these are the highest-paid financial advisors and investors in in the entire American sector. So and, and, and they don't pay regular taxes. Um, uh, so there's all sorts of problems with this, but it demonstrates the problem with these theories that we've uh, been succumbed to.
0: And on July forth to 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 borrow some some language from 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 the American the traditional American narrative the victims of all this are the people the workers mm-hmm. right
1: mm-hmm. yes yes right so we're saying oh this is people say this is an efficient market and it's it makes markets more productive you say, productive for who right um it's the, the 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 wealth that is extracted from all of these companies that they invest in and by the way healthcare industries you know Doctors' offices. It's not just private retailers. It's all sorts of industry. Um, they've got their sites on, you know, dental practices and dermatology practices and and hospital beds and and you know drug makers and all this stuff. And and they say, look, what well, this is productive because if you measure it as like a total amount of wealth created, you can say yes, private equity has created a ton of wealth, um, but it's it's not evenly spread out. In fact, it it just goes to the very highest net worth individuals. At a direct cost to workers and those who rely on pensions, uh, and you know all the places where uh, you've lost, you know, a retail stores and a- access to healthcare and, and all of that stuff.
0: And I assume that, in, in your mind, at least, this is manifested in July 2020 by the increasingly surreal contrast between the American stock market and the economic circumstance of most working or unemployed Americans.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you saw, you know, as the devastation of, you know, increasing unemployment week after week. I mean, these were just numbers that hadn't been seen since the Great Depression. I, I still think the other shoe for Americans is going to drop um, uh, as as we have, you know, just these surges of coronavirus. So you have coronavirus just, you know um, blowing through America without, I mean, we're just not, um, dealing with this, uh, businesses are trying to come back, jobs are being lost, um, foreclosures are coming and yet the stock market just keeps, you know, increasing and it's back to, you know, lost a little bit in the beginning and then it's just kind of rebounded. And, and so it, it, it's not, um, we use the stock market as a rel, uh, as a sort of indicator for the market, but, um, it is not that it is very much, um, Two different markets: those uh, who invest in the stock market, which is less than fifty percent of the public, and even that's an overstatement because a lot of us invest through a four hundred one k that is, you know, just our retirement savings. Um, versus those of us who actually work in a real economy, we have to pay for stuff and we have to buy food and and um, you know have rent or mortgages, and and that economy is suffering. But the stock market doesn't really care about that
0: economy. And I know in your op-ed, you argue that the Fed's response to the, the COVID-19 crisis is itself again uh, c- concretizing these inequalities. It's exaggerating them. It's compounding uh, the benefits that, the, that, that a tiny group of people are getting from the stock market versus the, the, the real experience of, of most working or non-working Americans.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the Fed's monetary policy, and, and this is all very unprecedented. I mean, since 2008 until now, um, they've done just unprecedented interventions in, you know, repo markets in commercial paper in um, quantitative easing. All of that um, is through the banks. And, and I don't mean through the banks to the people. I mean, just to the banks. And, and the theory is, well, if you save the banks and save their toxic assets, then the the economy will be better off and that people will also be better off. And that is just the thing that I'm trying to talk about in my op-ed and I've talked about in my books is that it's not that, that first of all, the, the banks aren't passing down any of that down to people. And, and second of all, you know, you, you've, you know, in 2008 and ongoing, we've rewarded these banks, um, you know, risk taking and, and the, these purchases of toxic assets. And yet, you know, the homeowners who lost their homes never recovered. And the banks are way back to uh, profitability. And in, you know, the one weekend where, you know, the coronavirus um, uh, crisis looked to be kind of, you know, causing some ripples in in bank balance sheets, the Fed came in with just, you know, massive amounts, trillions of dollars, this this time in 2020, of monetary policy to just save these banks and smooth out that ride. Um, And so, you know, they've chosen again and again to protect the banks, um, as opposed to trying to save yeah you know, homeowners and actual sort of people on the ground
0: some people see our crisis of 2020 as a kind of trinity uh, parallel crises the the medical crisis of covid-19 the black lives matter crisis and the economic crisis but you're suggesting that they're all bound up together aren't you
1: yes and and the crisis the the black and white racial gap. I, mean, I wrote my book, The Color of Money, you know, several years ago, it was a 10 year long project. This is not a crisis that is new. Um, I think what the coronavirus and the police killings have done is just throw a match onto a flame. And the same thing I think can be said of the 1967, 1968 riots is, um, you know, when you ignore a problem for so long, and then you have these events that just kind of spark, right? So the fact that coronavirus Hit black communities disproportionately, and and the the supplies went, uh, you know, disproportionately to white, you know, wealthier communities, and and then you have the the killings and and the lack of response, and the force of the entire sort of Trump presidency being completely based on white supremacy, um and and I think these these uh, protests uh, which are inspiring, you know, uh, were inevitable, and um but the the problems are not new. And I do see them as interrelated as I think black communities increasingly um, don't see uh, the market or the government working for them and aren't honestly offered good choices as between the Democrats and the Republicans. And I, you know, I'm a, I was a proud Obama volunteer and voter. But, you know, the Obama administration in 2008, instead of saving homeowners, they made the decision to save the banks. And, you know, I um, <clears throat> You can, it, that was, you know, pre-Mitch McConnell's, uh, pre, you know, the Republican Senate's um, blocking them. That was, you know, the, the Obama Treasuries and Larry, Larry Summers and uh, uh, Geithner was the head of that and Bernanke. And and they just said, oh, it's complicated to do this and there's moral hazard. So we're just going to save the banks. So so, you know, I, I, the, the frustration has been there. It's been mounting. And I think um, these problems are. Um, are long-lasting. Uh, they haven't gotten better. Uh, black communities, for example, lost 53 percent of their wealth during the financial crisis, and, and have not recovered that. Um, and then you throw this virus on it, and and increasingly, I mean, going to that earlier question of who has independence, where you know you have these white wealthy people, you know, escaping to their yachts. The yacht sector is booming right now. It's like never been better. You yeah. have you know country homes and, and all these people who can self-isolate and work from home. And then you have, you know, essential workers out there who are doing the deliveries, who are working in the grocery stores and are dying at a disproportionate rate. Um, and, and so these crises are not equalizing crises. In fact, they pull um, us further apart. And, and so this was, of uh, course, inevitable, I think.
0: Very briefly, uh, Mercer, this is unfair question to ask you to summarize briefly. Maybe we can do another show about this. But to have a real independence day, a real july 4th what needs to happen in america
1: um i think what needs to happen in america is a sort of truth and reconciliation and a reparations programs on the on the race issue i think we really have never americans have never confronted um what james madison called uh, our original sin of slavery and then all that came after so it's not just slavery it's the racial superiority myth that was used to justify slavery. And then hundreds of years after slavery, the Jim Crow, the segregation, the, the explicit, you know, domination of the police forces, the white suburbs that were created, the blocking of, you know, black children from certain schools and, and the, the, the racial wealth gap, which is the focus of my book, The Color of Money, which is, you know, black family, white families have 20 times the wealth of black families and that gap doesn't diminish even with high income for blacks and whites, right? So you can be two, a black doctor and a white doctor, a black lawyer and a white lawyer, and the wealth gap is going to be wide. And that has everything to do with a history of exclusion and where do you buy your house? And does your house even increase in value? In a lot of black communities, their houses don't increase in value because they're black communities, whereas white communities, um, most Uh, have their wealth in those homes. And so I think, you know, just really laying out and measuring the damage that has been wrought by these very American uh, policies of racial exclusion and exploitation, and then just, uh, you know, a recompense, reparations, And, and that reparations can take many forms. But I think... There's this just rot, this toxicity at the core of um, the American dream. And and I do think there are these two strains. I mean, there is that white supremacy that's always been there. there there's also the, you know, the very aspiring um, documents that we're celebrating on July 4th, right? the Declaration of Independence, the very soaring rhetoric that Martin Luther King actually uses to hold America accountable. Say, look, we, we are premised on these, you know, self-evident truths. And yet they've never been... Uh, made real for a whole portion of Americans, right? Um, and you know, there's a great uh, Frederick Douglass did a July 4th um, speech, you know, back during emancipation, so this is not July 4th for us. This is not our July 4th, right? Um, and, and you know, uh, Langston Hughes has, you know, America never was America for me. And and then of course, Martin Luther King. So black Americans, this is not, again, new, but there's this history of black Americans saying, you have your, your myths and your American dream and your July 4th. And it has never been true for us. And so I think making that true would heal a lot of the wounds in American society. And then, you know, not using those myths to justify why certain people are wealthy and others are poor um, as, you know, something about personal decision making or personal responsibility or the lack thereof, which is not true. We don't have uh, a meritocracy. We're basically closer to, you know, feudalism than, than capitalism. Um So, you know, I I think kind of confronting those would go a long way.
0: And very briefly, uh, finally getting getting back to your 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 piece, the neoliberal looting of America in the New York Times, do we just need to make private equity illegal? Do we need to fundamentally restructure American capitalism?
1: I, I think, uh, yes, it needs to be restructured. Re, uh, uh, I think private equity is, you know, one thing among many that needs to be uh, either made illegal or, or reformed. One is taxation. I mean, truly progressive taxation. So the wealthy, the private equity, and the you know, big banks must pay more in taxes or at least as much as the rest of us pay. Because th- that's not being uh, true right now. Right. So a lot the working people pay way more proportionately. Than the, the wealthy, uh, so that breaking up banks and we we have you know five national banks that control fifty percent you know up to eighty percent if you're counting the top twenty of the market that's that's not capitalism that's a monopoly so so really breaking down those forces of monopoly I mean Google Facebook Amazon we we have these emerging monopolies in tech and in retail that are a threat currently and will become more so as they continue to accumulate power. And then I think getting money out of politics, I mean, that's uh, structurally necessary. And I don't know what that takes, you know, and, you know, uh, other voting uh, issues that we have, like the electoral college, like we have a slaveholders constitution and reforms were purposefully blocked. Uh, uh, Votes were, um, you know, uh, allocated in the way that the slaveholders needed to do so. So all of those things, I think, go into it.
0: Finally, uh um, Mercer, uh, this is a very odd July 4th. We can't go out, no fireworks. Everyone's stuck at home. Probably, uh, one way of, of spending July 4th is, is reading a book, particularly for our lit hub community. What would you suggest reading on July 4th symbolically perhaps?
1: Um, I would say, uh, um, uh, a couple of books that I keep going back to, um, uh, is uh, James Baldwin's um, The Fire Next Time is a book I've read maybe uh, 25 times. And I uh, just went back to it recently. And it's just amazing to me how um, spot on uh, Baldwin was on so many of these issues uh, back then. And he's just this brilliant writer and thinker. And so I've been rereading that lately. And then another book that I think um, has helped me kind of conceive of race and Racism in America is um, The History of White People by Nell Painter. Um, And she kind of talks about the myth of whiteness in America and how whiteness was created sort of as an anti-blackness and how whiteness expanded to include, you know, the Irish didn't used to be white and the, you know, Italians weren't white. And then suddenly they were. And so it really kind of contextualizes what we mean uh, when we talk about race and black and white and Asian and all of this stuff and and why those categories were necessary. Um, So those two are good ones.
0: You've been listening to Keynote hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.